I love me some John Cash, I tell you what. And with the trumpets, it's always good when you have trumpets in a song. I'm just saying what I'm saying right now. Hey, I want to welcome everybody here in the room, those who are watching us at home and on the stream, those who are on a treadmill, those who are working out, those who find themselves doing something and you're letting us talk to you into your life. We're glad that you're a part of the Sagebrush family. I also want to say welcome to all of our multi-sites all over New Mexico and our campus all the way out in the country of Belize. We're glad that you're a part as well. We are concluding our series today called Bride and Gloom. Let's, let's get right into it. Bob Trumpy was a sports radio guy for many, many years in Cincinnati. He would take all kinds of phone calls from different people who were listening to a show. On one particular night, he heard from a woman, and she said, Trumpy, I hate your talk show. And Bob Trumpy said, what in the world are you talking about? Why do you hate my talk show? She says, because of my husband. My husband comes home every night, puts on headphones, doesn't listen to me, doesn't pay attention to the kids. All he does is listen to your sports radio program. Well, Trumpy said, is he listening right now? She said, as a matter of fact, he is. That's why I'm calling you. He said, well, is there any kind of message that I could give to him? She said, that'd be great. His name is Mike. If you tell him that I'm going to go to the grocery store, I won't be back till about 8.30. While I'm gone, he needs to pay attention to the kids, make sure they don't burn the house down. He said, all right, I'll, re I'll tell him the message. He said, Mike, I know you're listening. <clears throat> Your wife is on the phone. She said she's going to the grocery store till about 8.30 tonight, and then you're supposed to watch the kids and make sure they don't burn the house down. He said, is he reacting? Woman said, yes, he is. He's waving goodbye to me right now and giving me the thumbs up. <laughs> now, friends, that's messed up right there, isn't it? But that pales in comparison to how messed up marriages really are. read a statistic this past week that just absolutely shocked me. 20 to 25% of women have had an affair. 30 to 35% of married men have had an affair. So we're going to talk today about how to affair-proof our married relationship. And we're going to look at a relationship in the Old Testament between David and his first wife, Michael. Now listen, I don't know why Saul named his daughter Michael. Maybe he wanted a boy. But that was the name of this girl. And we're going to see the different signs of things that happened along the way that caused them to be in a position they never wanted to be in. So let's talk about King David for just a second. What do we know about him from the Old Testament? Well, first off, we know that God said that David was a man after his own heart. We also know that David was extremely courageous. He would tend his father's flocks of, of lambs out in the fields and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, would come against the flock and David would stand against the predators and he would drive them away. We know that David was also courageous the day he went to visit his brothers on the front lines. The Israelites were battling against the Philistines when a giant of a man by the name of Goliath came out and taunted the armies of God and defied God himself. David was so ticked off that he asked for permission to take the giant on. And the Bible says that he ran out onto the battlefield with nothing more than a slingshot and a few stones because he believed that the battle belonged to the Lord. We also know that David was a loyal friend to Jonathan who was Saul's son. 
And we also know that David was a mighty warrior for King Saul. We also know that years later, David becomes the king over Israel, and he is the greatest king that Israel has ever had. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 15 talks about David. It says, David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Now, what this passage of Scripture is referring to is the moment in time when David cheated on his wife and had an adulterous affair with the woman by the name of Bathsheba. Let me set this story up for you. It was the time when kings were supposed to go out to war. And for reasons I don't fully understand, David didn't go out to war. One afternoon, I'm guessing that he's bored. He goes out onto his balcony overlooking his kingdom. And he sees a woman up on a rooftop who's bathing. Now, this was not unusual. For the most part, during this time period, that's where bathrooms were. They were up on the rooftop. That's where the baths were. That's where the showers were. And there was always a partition. There was always a curtain. So when a person would go in there to bathe, they would be modest. There would be some discretion there. They would always have some kind of a covering. But on this particular day, there's no covering for Bathsheba. Now, did she not pull the curtain? Did she pull the curtain just enough but left an opening? We don't know. Was she careless? Was she naive? Was she out there trying to get the king's attention? We don't really know. But we do know this, that David saw her and he called a servant over to find out a little bit more about her. The servant came back and gave the following Report. It says, David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah? Now, this is an unusual genealogy in the Bible. You know, it usually is, uh, you know, he begat and then they begat and then they begat. And before long, you forget what you just read. That's usually how those genealogies go. It always has to do with the father, that this person was the, the son of this man, this father. Father is always the genealogy through the father. But here we have a genealogy that also mentions the husband. What's the servant trying to do? He's trying to say, listen, David, first off, you're a married man. And secondly, that woman that you're gawking at right now, that's a married woman. She's married to Uriah the Hittite. He's trying to give him a warning shot. But David liked it. He loved it. He wanted some more of it. And so he calls the servant to bring Bathsheba back, and he sleeps with her, and they end up, Bathsheba, getting pregnant. Now, this was the final nail in the coffin to the marriage that David had with Michael. Now, their marriage started off really, really good. Uh, what's happened was, is after David defeated Goliath, as part of his winnings for defeating the giant, he was given the hand of Saul's daughter, Michael. And we find out that Michael is deeply in love with David. 1 Samuel 18, verse 20 says, Now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. 
Now, here's what's great about this love story. Michael loves David. Guess what? David is desperately in love with Michael as well. In fact, he wants to show how much he's in love with her, and he wants to honor King Saul. And rather than just taking the girl as a prize for killing Goliath, he said, no, I want to earn her. So he goes off and he kills 200 Philistines, David does, and brings back the foreskins of the Philistines to King Saul. I guess that's what romance was back in the day. I don't know what to tell you. Here's where they find their very first issue in their new married relationship. They had in-law issues. The Bible says when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. In-law problems. Did you know in the first five years of marriage, the number two reason for divorce is in-law problems? In-law problems, where they are jumping in to that new married relationship and they're giving their unwanted advice. In-law problems, where the son or the daughter keeps running back home to mama and dada to find out what they should do in their relationship and they're getting relationship advice. Rather than working it out between the two of them, they've got their mama and their daddy helping them along the way. There was a grandma that went to a house and... Uh, she was excited to see her grandson run out to meet her. See, grandson said, oh, grandma, I'm so excited that you're here. How long are you staying this time? Grandma said, I'm staying for two weeks. Little boy said, oh, that's great. My dad's finally going to do that trick he's been talking about. She said, what trick are you talking about right now? He said, well, I overheard him talking to mama. He said, if you stayed for two weeks, he climbed the walls. That's hilarious right there. Let me talk to all the in-laws for just a second because you might be acting like outlaws rather than in-laws, you know. You do realize that when your kid said, I do, that you said, I don't. When your kid said, I do, there were certain things you said, I don't to. You ready for this? I don't meddle in their business. Their business is their business it's none your business. I don't give unwanted advice. I don't insert myself into the relationship. Now, if they ask for advice, that's fine. You can give all the advice that you want to give if they're asking for it. But if it's not asked for, don't give it. Let them figure it out for themselves. Let them work it out. That's how the, their marriage will be forged together as they work through the issues and the problems that arise. They don't need mama. They don't need daddy to work it through for them. Let me give you another I don't. I don't say anything about their spouse that would damage the relationship. So you're not going to be the kind of in-law that's going to be talking about what a, what a louse that they married and what a jerk that they married and how you tried to warn them along the way. No, you're going to support both of them equally. That person that your son or daughter married is now your son, is now your daughter. You can get rid of the in-law. They're flesh of your flesh and they're bone of your bones. So you don't want to do anything that would cause division between the two of them. And also, you don't want to be the in-law who's naggy and judgmental and jerky. Now, I was fortunate. When Christian and I got married, our, our in-laws were fantastic. My, my parents were great. Her parents were great. And whenever we had an issue, we didn't go running to mama. We didn't go running to daddy to find out what we needed to do. We ran to each other. 
We fought for our marriage. We fought for our relationship. And we didn't need anybody else to tell us how to fix that. That was something that we needed to do. Now, there were times that we would ask our parents for advice. And they would give us that advice. But for the most part, they stayed away from us. They let us figure it out for ourselves. And I'm eternally grateful that they did. Now, now, some of you have big-time in-law problems, and you haven't had it just for a brief amount of time. You've had it for a long, long time. Let me give you my bit of advice for you. It's worth two cents, all right? That's all it's worth, but you take it or leave it. Here it is. If you're having problems in your marriage with your mom or your dad, it is your responsibility to go to your mom and dad and deal with the issue. So let me explain what this means. Husbands, if it's your mom or dad that's getting in the way of your relationship, it's your job to go to your parents and have a come to Jesus with them. To give them parameters and to give them boundaries. You don't turn to your wife and say, well, that's your problem. You can go deal with it. No, 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 no. You don't want to do that, friends. You don't want your wife going against your mama. That is a recipe for disaster. Do you understand? And ladies, it's the same thing. If it's your mom or dad that's giving the problems, you have to have the critical conversation with them. You don't turn to your husband and say, I'm just uncomfortable saying these things to my parents. No, you suck it up, buttercup, and you go have the conversation because you don't want to pit your husband against your dad and against your mom. Well, in this situation, we got in-law problems on steroids because Saul becomes more and more jealous of David, even to the point where he wants to kill him. Now, if your in-laws want to kill you, you need to get help as soon as possible, okay? So Michael is going to help David escape from her dad, and I want you to see how she helps him escape. 1 Samuel 19, verse 13 says, Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment, and putting some goat hair at the head. So what did she do? She grabbed an idol, and she put it in the bed, and I'm guessing she put covers over it and some goat hair that made it look like David was laying there. Now, here's my, here's my question when I read that passage of Scripture. Where'd they get the idol from? Who had an idol? Who's, who's worshiping these idols? We know it's not David. Because God said David is a man after his own heart. We know that David was fully committed to God. So whose idol is it? It's Michael's idol. She doesn't have the same passion. She doesn't have the same desire for the things of God. So what's the second issue we have in this relationship? We have a spiritual mismatch. Friends, I I need to explain something to you, and I hope you understand this. You're more than just a physical being. You understand that, don't you? God has placed a spirit in you, a soul inside of you. And it's two souls that come together in a married relationship. And if I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times. When you place Jesus as the centerpiece of your relationship, you can soar to new heights that you never dreamed were even possible. I'm always amazed at the number of young couples who come to get premarital counseling here at our church, and they don't take spiritual matters seriously in their relationship. I mean, we got one person who's a follower of Christ and the other person who's like, yeah, I go to church every once in a while. I'm not really interested. And I'm always scratching my head going, why are you marrying this person who doesn't love your Lord and Savior? I mean, isn't Jesus the most important thing in your life? And so you're telling me that you want to connect yourself with someone who could care less about the most important thing in your life? That doesn't make any sense to me. 
How can you be on the same page? How can you be going the same direction? One of you loves God with everything you've got. The other one of you doesn't. One of you is living for God with everything you've got. The other one could just care less. How can two walk together unless they agree? This issue of a spiritual mismatch, it just never goes away, does it? So you get married and you think to yourself, well, I'll change them. Well, guess what? That's not going to happen. You think somewhere along the way you'll be able to convert them. That's probably not going to happen. And so what do you do? You say, well, let's pray together. He's not interested. She's not interested. Hey, would you read the Bible with me? No, I don't, I'm not, I don't care about that. And all of a sudden you feel a distance. You feel an isolation. You feel a separation between the two of you. And every time you invite them to come to church, it's a fight, isn't it? Why is it so quiet in here? Because I know I've got people in this room, I've got people at home, and you're like, yeah, Todd, you're right. Because you're sitting here alone. You're watching me alone. Your spouse is in another room. Your spouse is back at the house. They weren't interested in coming. And you feel a loss. You feel an emptiness. You want to share this so desperately with them. And they're not interested. And then you have kids. What what do you do with that? Do you pray with your kids when your spouse isn't interested? When when your kids get old enough and and you say, let's go to church. And and they look at you and say, well, dad doesn't go. Mom doesn't go. You see, it never goes away, does it? What if you want to do family devotionals with your kids and your spouse is undermining everything you're trying to do, spiritually speaking? You you see, it just just never goes away. And so what if some of you are doing? You're just nagging them to death. You think you can nag them to Jesus. Just stop. Don't nag them to Jesus. I've never seen anybody nag to Jesus in my entire life. I've seen people love to Jesus. I've seen people serve to Jesus. You You know what my advice is to you? Pray. Pray circles around them. Pray that somebody would come in their life that would, t- that would live for Jesus so incredibly, that would have such great influence in their life that they would want. It probably won't be you. But pray that God would bring somebody into your life that would influence them so the heart would soften. Pray that God would put inside of them a brand new heart that would be receptive to the things of God. So what, what, what do we have here? We've got David and Michael. They're not even on the same page spiritually. There was a magazine called Marriage and Family Magazine. Years ago, they came out with a study. And, and they found that if couples did four things, there was a 99% chance that they would stay together. Now, if I could offer you an insurance policy where 99% of the time it would be successful for your marriage, you'd probably want to buy that insurance policy. Well, these things don't cost you any money. Ready for the four things? These were the four things these couples did. You ready? They read the Bible together. That didn't cost you anything. You can even download a Bible app. They prayed together. They went to church as often as they could. Not occasionally. Not every once in a while. They went to church as often as they could. You ready for this one? They served in that church. They did those four things. 99% of the time, those couples stayed together. Now, why is that? 
Because when you come together, you're not just coming together physically, you're coming together spiritually as well. And the Bible says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. It takes three to make a marriage everything God wants it to be. Jesus must be the center of your marriage. And listen to me, friends, the more you fall in love with Jesus, the closer you are to each other. It's just the way that it works. So we got some issues here. we got in-law problems. we got a spiritual mismatch. Things aren't good. Let me give you the third thing. They were apart too much. Now, in the case of David, we're going to give him a break. Because he's separated from his wife because his father-in-law wants to kill him. Hopefully, that's not your problem, right? But distance from your spouse is never a good thing, is it? Some of you are traveling too much. You're never home. And the boss is putting demands and expectations on you and you're farther and farther just drifting farther and farther away from your spouse because you're never with them. And, and you're chasing after something else. You're chasing after a job. You're chasing after a promotion. Others of you, it's not about you getting on an airplane and flying to another place. You're just not present. You're distant when you're in the room. Some of us, we come home from work and we just detach and rather than giving our best, we're just spent. And what's on the phone is more important than what's on our spouse's heart. What's on that stupid TV set is more important than what's going on in your kids' lives. And you wonder why there's no intimacy. You're not talking to each other. You're not communicating with each other. Let me ask you a question. What are you chasing after today? What are you running after that has anything to do with your family? Because some of us are running after a corner office. Some of us are running after a bonus, and some of us are, are running after a, a, a promotion. And you're running away from your wife, or you're running away from your husband, you're running away from your kids. Let me say, let me say this. Not every good thing is a God thing. Let me say that again. Not every good thing is a God thing. Now, why am I so passionate about this? Because I blew it. I'm a recovering workaholic, and I can easily slip right back into that, and I know the damage that it does because I did it to my wife and I did it to my, my oldest daughter. First two years of my oldest daughter's life, I was not there. I worked as a student pastor. I traveled the country, and I spoke at different places and wanted to make big name for myself and be a big shot. And I worked 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I gave it everything I had because I was going to provide for my family. I was going to make sure there was a roof over their head and there was food in their belly. And so I chased after it. We had this one night, had a high attendance of over 1,500 kids showing up. It was incredible. And I sat there so proud looking out at this sea of teenagers. I had arrived. I was now the youth pastor of the largest student ministry in the country. And oh, I puffed out my chest. And I said, look at what I did for you. At the moment that should have been my greatest triumph was my greatest tragedy. Because as I looked at that sea of teenagers, I saw my wife about three rows back. And I didn't know her. And that child you had in her arms, well, I missed everything. I missed the first steps. I missed the first words. I missed the first time she rolled over. I missed it all. And I remember thinking to myself, God, look at what I did for you. Look at what I accomplished for you. And God said, 
I didn't ask you to sacrifice her. Not one place in scripture where he says that you should sacrifice your family for your job. Now I remember him speaking to me, and I always know it's God because he tells me stuff I never want to hear. And he said, you know what? I never asked you to do it. Not at her expense. Not at your daughter's expense. And then the light bulb came on. You do realize, Todd, they can replace you tomorrow. But you're irreplaceable at home. You're the dad of that daughter. You're the husband of that woman. You need to show up and give your best there. Well, guess what? David wasn't around. So they grew distant. Saul hated David so much, you know what he did? He gave her away to another man. And David found out about it and hurt him so bad. He said, you know what? I'll just get him back. I'll marry another woman. Well, years go by. And David becomes king. And what's the first thing he does? Is he gets Michael back. He wants Michael to be his wife again. He's hoping for a second chance. But it never turned out the way that he wanted it to. The damage had already been done. Look at what happens on the day that David brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He's leading a great parade celebrating. The Bible says David wearing a linen ephod, a priestly robe, danced before the Lord with all of his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. 2 Samuel 6, 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. She's cutting him down with sarcasm during his greatest triumph. Everyone is honoring David, his wife, is humiliating him. Look at his response. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll become even more undignified than this and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. They didn't know how to fight fair. They used sarcasm. They used cutting words. How many times have you done the same thing? Rather than attacking the problem, you attack the person. You've done such damage. You've called names. You've thrown things. You've been just so ungodly. You've wounded the person that you say you love the most on the face of this earth. Ladies, let me tell you something about men. Men just want to be your hero. Deep down inside the heart and soul of every man, he just wants to be the hero of his bride. And when you lift him up with your words, when you believe in him, when you encourage him, I'm telling you right now, he'll soar. But when you nag him and you gripe at him and you're sarcastic to him and you're mean to him and you say terrible things and you're nah, 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 you will break his soul down. And he won't soar. He'll crash and burn. You see, one of the things you've got to realize is that your words have power. Husbands, your words have power to your wife. Wives, your words have power to your husband. Husbands, listen to me. You know what your wife really wants? She wants to be loved. She wants to be cherished. She wants to be treasured. And how do you do that? You do that by building her up. 
You do that by spending time with her. You do that by putting her needs ahead of your own. They couldn't speak well of each other. They were harsh and caustic to each other. Look at Proverbs 19 verse 13. A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. Drip. 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 You sick of it yet? Proverbs 21, 9. Better to live on the corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Now, ladies, I think there's a better way to, to say these verses, don't you? How about this one? A quarrelsome husband's like a constant dripping. Or better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome husband. I don't think God has a problem with us saying them that way too, huh? Because for some of you, it's not your wife that's the constant dripping. It's you, men. With your words, you can build them up. And with your words, you can tear them down. Well, look at what happens. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. I'm guessing there was no more sex. I'm guessing they lived isolated from each other from this day forward. So it was the time when kings were supposed to go out to war. And David stayed back, looked over his kingdom, and saw a woman bathing there. And rather than turning away, he continued to look. And in a moment, he forgot about his passionate relationship with God. And in a moment, he threw away his integrity. In a moment, he never realized the number of people that he would affect. And he did that, which he shouldn't do. And what do you bet he justified it along the way? He probably said, well, she doesn't even love you, Lord. The woman that I'm married to. And she's such a nag. She's always griping at me. She's always yelling at me about something. My goodness, we're not even on the same page spiritually. And it's been a long time since we've had sex, I'll tell you that right now. And aren't I supposed to be happy? God, don't you want me to be happy? I'm sure he justified it, as we all do right before we sin. So what's God's response to this? Because the Bible says that David knew what he did. And you ready for this? God knew what he did. And he couldn't get away from God. And for a year, he won't talk to God about what he's done. And then the prophet Nathan comes that God sends to him to confront David over what he's done. And does God justify or rationalize what David has done with Bathsheba? Now look at what he says. He said, you've stolen your neighbor's wife. You've despised the Lord's command and you have done what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. I've heard people say that the reason they cheated on their spouse is because they gained a few pounds rationalizing something. Or the reason they cheated on their spouse was because you know, they're never around anymore. And even when they were around, they really weren't around. They were just distant. And they just felt so lonely. We so much want to justify it. But there's no justification for doing what is evil in the eyes of of the Lord. So what should we do? Well, you made promises to each other. Do you remember that? For better, for worse? In sickness and in health? To love and to cherish? For Until death do you part? Richer for poor? You remember all that? So what, 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 what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live that out. And, and here's the deal, husbands. You don't wait for your wife to live it out. You live it out. 
You don't say, well, when she makes the first move, then I'll make the... No, 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 no. You are the chief servant, men. You serve her. You, you treat her. You, you give your life up for her as Christ gave his life up for the church. And she'll reciprocate over time. You win her love. That's why I always say, go on lots of dates with each other. Go have adventures together. Go have lots of fun with each other. Have lots of sex with each other. Build each other up with your words. When they walk into a room, go, wow. Because they still take your breath away. Now, some of your marriages are hanging on by a thread. Would you just do the re-engage ministry? We have this small group that's literally helped hundreds of couples Pull their relationship back together again. And some of you, let's just be honest, you're just too prideful to do it. You say, oh, Todd, I could never do something like that. That would be humiliating. It would be embarrassing to admit that we have a problem. Let me ask you a question, those of you who golf. And your golf game is off. Don't you go and get lessons? When your kid's struggling in school, don't you get a tutor? When your business isn't performing well, don't you bring on a consultant to show you the things you can't see? I don't know about you, but my marriage to my wife is more important than my golf game. How about yours? On the app, you'll find information on the banner above when the next re-engage open group is going to start. I hope you'll show up. I asked this one couple who's a part of our re-engage ministry to share their story of how God used that ministry to impact their lives. Take a look at this. I didn't want to get married at all because of how my parents were. And I just, you know, told myself, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to put myself through this. I don't want to be hurt like this. I don't want to give someone else a chance to do this to me. You know, growing up as a teenager, I was rebellious. I, I didn't listen to my parents at all. And I didn't really care what God thought of me. I didn't care what my parents thought of me. I didn't really care what anyone thought of me. After we had gotten together, it was off. Like, we were off. I didn't go to church. We didn't go to church. We didn't talk about God. It was, it was a rough time. There was times where I thought that we were just weren't going to make it. Like, this is not going to work. We heard about re-engage through his parents. And in my head, I'm thinking, like, we don't need anybody to come in and talk about our marital problems. We joined the, the open group of re-engage and, the, you know, just opened our eyes to a lot of things that I wasn't used to hearing about the basics of love and being kind and gracious to people. It was life-changing. We learned so much about how to ground ourselves in the Lord and have our marriage just centered around Him, and that makes a huge difference. It healed our marriage, but it also healed me, and I am just forever blessed by it. Our marriage today, we still run into typical marital problems. We still have arguments. That's going to happen. That's not going to change. What did change, though, is that we have God in our marriage now, and we're able to come together and reconcile things with His help. After we engage, our marriage is fun. It's, it's lively, and it's full of passion and love. It, we would not be sitting here right now without it. Nope. We just wouldn't. I, I would not have met God in Christ. I would not have the Holy Spirit now if we did not do re-engage.